Hello and welcome to Cartel Aristocrats cast number 83. As always, we would like to thank our sponsors, Gathering Magic and CoolStuffInc.com, who have provided us with free gift certificates to give away. With free shipping on orders of $100 or more, a sweet 25% buy list bonus, and their ever-popular customer rewards program, Cool Stuff Inc. is a store for all of your Magic the Gathering needs. Now, I'm joined, of course, this week with my co-hosts, Ed Wynn, fresh back from London, Jim Caselli, fresh back from Atlanta, and Travis Allen, fresh back from Macy's. How are you guys doing? I didn't go to Atlanta. I don't Wait, shop did at Thomas Macy's. come to you? Did Thomas come to you then? Yeah, he's in he's in Orlando for his honeymoon. Oh. Because him and his wife really enjoy Disney, so they've been at Disney for like a week and a half. This I did not know. How are you doing, Travis? Just fine. And I do like Macy's, but I haven't been there in a while. Uh, I'm sorry. And Ed, how jet lagged are you feeling right now? I've slept like maybe two hours or three hours over the past like two days. So I'm ready to get this done and lay down. So on par for normal. Yep. Classic Ed, of course. Where should we start? Let's start with the GP system. So as many of you know, Pauper is the new uh, promoted popular paper format that people are playing. And um, there were over 300 people at this potentially profitable event with the professor this weekend. Uh, Ed, did you notice any Pauper stuff going on at London that piqued your interest or was it just not really a big thing? First off, we need less alliterations. You're, this Alliteration Jeremy is far worse than pun Jeremy. Um, in terms of GP London itself, uh, which I'll, I'll kind of stick to Jeremy's question. I'm sure there'll be more questions about the GP later. There's definitely a non-zero number of people asking for popper cards. It's definitely been a trend that I've kind of noticed since uh, the beginning of the year. I wasn't in Indy, so I can't speak for that. But in Santa Clara, I definitely saw a lot of people walking around asking for, for them. Even not necessarily the most expensive ones. Like obviously, there's always people asking for Obulet. Um, that card's pretty expensive. That's generally, it's also an old school card, so the demand for in, for that card in Europe is a little bit higher. But there's still people asking for things like a lot of the smaller stuff, like Battle Screeches, Ash Barons, uh, the type of card that you that would only be associated with Popper. Uh, there are people always just constantly asking for those things throughout the weekend. Uh, and it's one of the things that I think if you're a vendor at a GP or if you have these, you can definitely capitalize on them because usually vendors don't carry them and there's just no shortage of demand. Uh, the event London, it was like 330 people or something. And 302 I just, people. Okay, 302 people. Yeah, which is still pretty insane for a, uh, for a single side event. Um, which as a point of reference, before they started firing Popper in Santa Clara earlier this year, most popper, or sorry, not most popper. Uh, most side events were hitting like maybe sixty to eighty people. If you weren't counting things like the Sunday Super Series or the the P, uh, PTQs, so having a side event that's over three hundred is pretty insane. And the fact that it's continuing to grow makes me think that the a lot of the popper financial trends will continue. That it's not just you know a frontier or a tiny leaders type format that enjoy. There's actually enough people who are continuing to play it that a lot of the prices will continue to stick around and we'll probably see uh, just some old obscure cards continue to increase in price. 
Jim, any thoughts on Popper that you've been uh, looking at? Um, yeah, I think that like it's definitely the kind of format that can get very popular because the buy-in so low. But a lot of people I've also seen have been turned off to it because um, as people get more invested in the form, or more people get more invested, there's just some cards just dry up. There's no supply, so there's no price relief for like the really obscure cards. Not, I don't want to say obscure, like the ones that haven't been reprinted a lot, but like weren't that popular outside of Popper before this, like. Gush, for example, it's a Nemesis common that was printed in a dual deck and then printed in a reprint of a dual deck, and that's it. There's no nobody has those like sitting in their closet that they forgot about that they could dig out now that they're expensive. They just won't exist. They they, they just don't exist. So, I think it's going to be quite some time before we get a master set that um, can reprint these. So, I have a feeling that the long the the medium term for these cards is probably pretty high. Travis? Mm, I've talked about this a bit on Fast Finance, and I think that there's going to be money to be made on Popper. I mean, there already has been, but it has a couple problems, I think. First of all, uh, high cost is an antithesis to the format, um, which, you know, if Popper's gets too popular, the rare commons, the really old ones that are central to their decks, get expensive, which defeats the whole purpose. And you also have the issue of where do you play this? Uh, it's the same problem Tiny Leaders has, right? Like your format either needs to be competitive or social. And if it's social, that's great. That's EDH. allows you to play with your friends around the kitchen table. And if it's competitive, that's great. There are events for it, GPs, FNMs, whatever. Tiny Leaders and Popper exist in this space in between where they're meant to be like fun, casual events. But also there's not really a lot of competitive support for them. And there probably won't be much. 93, 94 is in the same boat. Um, and that enjoys like this kind of like this mild strain of popularity um you know it's popular on social media with some of the really enfranchised players but by and large most players are not touching that format and never will um its gimmick is ancient cards uh popper's gimmick is that it's cheap and accessible um so i i guess that my concern here is that it's hard for these cards the whole point of the format is for the cards to be cheap which they won't be if it gets really popular but also how is it going to get popular because where are people supposed to play this 300 people to side event is pretty wild, but you also have to take into consideration that that might be sort of like a one-off, like a novelty. Like, oh, hey, it's the first popper event in my city or that's like ever really being held. I should go do it at this GP because it's going to be really cool. That would be nifty. Are people still going to want to play popper the 13th, 14th week in a row at their local store? Is it still exciting then? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, but those those store those formats have to... The, the, the places to play popper have to be in place in order to maintain demand and people have to want to keep playing it as well. So those are the two barriers that I see to like popper really being an opportunity to make money on popper. Um, the flip side of that, there will definitely be several more short term spikes on some of this stuff while people kind of discover them or people find new decks with new attention turn to the format. So it's an okay short to medium term, but I would not bank on uh, long term specs for popper. Yeah, that's a really good point. We do have M25 coming out next year. And even though stuff like Obliette probably won't get reprinted in that because the text on that is just obscene, a lot of the other stuff like Battle Screech or um, uh, Flagship Bearer could get reprinted in this set just uh, and crush people who are specking on stuff. But we are seeing a lot of people uh, make a bunch of money off this format. Uh, on the topic of old school, I was at GP Houston this weekend. L Ed was at GP London. 
uh, old school was flying off of vendors cases. It was not aggressively priced. A lot of the old school stuff was higher than TCG as far as condition was concerned and people were still just buying it. And there was a big old school event at Houston, uh, by big, actually not that big of an event, but like there were five rounds that people played in, um, Saturday night. So there were definitely people there that like someone paid $300 for a plate Eureka and it was like $200 on TCG or whatever. Uh, yeah, so it was just interesting to see some of this stuff. That's not really the popularity of the format. That's somebody missing a Eureka for their deck at the moment of the tournament and being willing to overpay because it supports a store, right? No, I actually talked to him. He was just building another deck for funsies and he saw it in the case and he was just like, yeah, I'll buy it All right, so he's an for idiot. old school. <laughs> I mean, some people like seeing cards in person and that's why going to Grand Prix is so much fun. There was a played volcanic beta volcanic for $3,000 this weekend at Grey Ogre. Uh, and I was like half tempted to pick it up all weekend and I, I didn't. But it was like it was like one of those things that you're only going to see in person. Yeah, I mean, I'll concede that when you're looking at stuff like that, being able to put your hands on a card and see the condition of it uh, is much more important than if you're buying a playset of you know whatever Brimaz or Captain Beckett, whatever you play these days. Yeah, and the other thing that Ed completely mm -hmm. nailed last year is that power is starting to go up again. Uh, the numbers were a lot higher at this GP for power, and I'm sure at London they were even crazier. Uh, There's just a lot of stuff I wasn't expecting to uh, see price-wise that was selling, and especially for Pauper, Eccles, and uh, Mishra's workshops. They were just really up there, and people were still okay paying that price. So it's just something to keep in mind on these older cards. I think the fact that Magic prices have been so heavily depressed, I think it makes it so that um, if you... If you look across the board, right? Like all, if you have one of magic, every magic card existence, for example, this is purely a thought ex experiment, right? Let's say it has a base value of one hundred thousand dollars, for example, right? If based on what happened towards the like quarter four last year, it, it's not hard to see that oh, magic is kind of in a dumpster. People don't think very highly of it right now. The market is pretty stagnant. Right, let's say your value goes down to like seventy thousand. Right, cards across the board will just naturally be dropping. It doesn't matter if it's standard, modern, old school, popper, what have you. Everything was just down towards the end of the year. When people see that cards naturally get cheaper, I think that just kind of gives people the impression that oh, this was cheaper than it was a year ago. There was one point where I was paying, you know, X for if I wanted X card, it was it would have cost me a certain amount of money. Now it's you know X minus. 10% or whatever. And I think that's causing people to buy in. And the fact that we see it so often because our business is in buying and selling cards, it makes it very easy to see that, oh, people are starting to pay cards that they, they start, are starting to pay prices that they wouldn't have paid previously. And I think that's kind of incentive for more people to do so. And we just, it, it's just much more visible in something like Popper old school because the shift is much larger, right? No one's really going to notice if some standard mythic goes from like, you know, $5 to $6, but because even though that's an 18% increase, someone will certainly notice if we see an 18% increase in something like, I don't know, a Eureka or something, which is, which are obviously multiple things going there. I think Travis kind of nailed it. Like that's the type of card where if you pick it up at an event, regardless of the number, you might think that, oh, this is cool. I could use a deck for it. I'll buy it now. Whereas if you're just kind of like scrolling, if I'm just sitting here scrolling through my Facebook feed, it's like, oh, sick deal, selling this card, selling this card. Like, sure, 10% below TCG low is a great price. 
but unless I see it in person, I'm much less inclined to buy it. And I think there's quite a few cars that kind of fall in that market. Popper old school is probably those. Uh, Japanese foils, Russian foils. How dare you? Those, like those are in kind of the same boat. Um, I think those are types of things that are like just largely impulsive, um, less predictable, I guess. Like obviously, like most of us would love to have like you know Juzam or something, right? But but the market online is just very different from what it is in paper, and I think you're much more likely to sell them in paper, even though the buy price on Juzam is way up. Uh, like they they're just quietly been disappearing online. They, they're just all kind of a weird category. Uh, but I don't think that the demand is just kind of a flash in the pan thing. I think a lot of it is here to stay. And I, I think we're kind of at the point where we are starting to see a lot of prices rebound. And I think if you're looking at one of every card magic at 100K, for example, it's starting to rebound back up from the 70K. And it wouldn't be surprised. It wouldn't surprise me if we're kind of back at the point where your collection would roughly be worth as much as it was before everything started tanking in september to october yeah and just to touch on this because i know a lot of our listeners don't like the grand prix talk um haggle at grand prix or tournaments if you're going to them uh if you're buying a substantial amount of cards or like one random foil that's sitting in a dealer case there are a lot of people that they weren't haggling on like a random seventh edition foil in a vendor's case but they were trying to haggle on like through the breaches and shocklands so like someone was like offering someone nine dollars on Steam vents when the vendor had them at ten, and the vendor's like, "That's what we buy them for because we can turn them so easily." And he just like went down the row haggling on that, and he didn't he didn't haggle on the uh, foil original Ravnica Temple Garden he ended up buying at the GP, which was a multitude times more expensive than Steam vents. So it was just sort of funny to see that guy walking through the booths and doing that. Uh, but it's like a it's a tool if you're buying a bunch of cards or like one random card, always haggle. And you can try it at your local game shop too if something's been sitting in their case for a while. I mean, the worst thing they can say is no. Just don't be offensive about haggling and you'll be fine. And no one has anything to add to that, I guess. I mean, not, not a ton, no. Okay. Moving on, we also had the Star City Games convention announced, which features no banless modern. What are your thoughts on that, guys? That format is going to be a hoot, and I hope that a bunch of people buy-listed their uh, mental missteps to Star City earlier this year, or I guess late last year when they had the buy-list bonus. What? So Star City did at end of the year. They were buying everything. If you got trade-in credit, you got 50% more. So I just hope that a bunch of people buy-listed all of their rando band and modern stuff like Mental Misstep because if they have a million copies of that, they'll sell out that weekend. Okay. Uh, <laughs> on the topic of no bandless modern, um, I think it's actually a pretty miserable format uh, for a long period of time. Uh, Card Kingdom out of Seattle, they're actually hosting uh, No Banless Modern like every month, kind of as a as a novelty tournament. It was like once a month on Saturday. There's like a decent prize uh, pool in it, and it was 
I I think after a few months, they actually stopped doing it, mainly because the format, it felt like it got solved reasonably fast, and gameplay wasn't particularly interesting. Like, I, I, it's so secret, I bash on Modern, because I think gameplay is quite bad, it's not interesting, you have very... Get him! Get him! Straightforward lines. Woo! Get him, Ed! But no Bandless Modern is even worse than that. Um, every deck, like, every deck has to play Mental Misstep, because that's how you defend against losing to Infect. Um... And even the combo decks that you think would do well, there's already an answer that someone figured out that you wouldn't think of. Like for example, you think that like, you know, for in the, on the case of Infect, um, you now have Fatal Push that deals with Ink Moth Nexus. You have Mental Misstep, which deals with Glistener Elf, and now you're kind of left on like Blight Agent as your creature poison people out, and a card like Blazing Shoal and Hypergenesis and Chromox, which are all banned in the format that you would think would be good. Um, Nyx was actually a very, very powerful card out of control deck sideboards that completely hoses those strategies. Um, and it's like these weird things that kind of came up that it just made the format like very, very unfun to play. And it was, it just wasn't terribly interesting to watch because people kind of saw the same thing over and over again. And Je the decks actually did the best were Jeskai Stoneblade and Jund. Um, at, the, at the time, this was, this was like three years ago before obviously things have changed. But um, they were able to outgrind most opponents, and because it was very difficult to kill people quickly through combos, because every deck had answers to combos, mainly in the form of mental misstep. Um, the games just kind of the games like the game states became very like degenerate very quickly. Um, so it's one of those things where I think people are appealed by idea because people want to be playing like their Jaces or Stoneforge Mystics or Bloodbraid Elves, yada yada. But like once you're actually playing it, it's far less fun than what people make it out to be. That doesn't surprise me at all. Like these cards are banned for a reason, and especially with no tuning to the format whatsoever, definitely strikes me as a complete novelty. Jim, well, I think that this the point of this event is to have a bunch of novelty formats there. Like they also um, announced that I think there's going to be a popper format, uh, the popper like classic. Um, there's a like two day vintage tournament. There's uh, cosplay contest. It's like so it's a bunch of like a lot of niche things that not a lot of people play. But if you have enough niche things, I guess people will come. There's yeah, a hundred dual is, right? There's a hundred dual land legacy tournament. But honestly, this just feels like Magic the Cash grabbing. They're doing like all these random formats to like entice people to buy more cards. First and like obviously that's their job. But it's not like selling normal standard staples or modern staples. It's, hey, here's all this stuff that's been sitting in our warehouse for too long. Buy this. That's well, sort of what it feels like to me. This is, I mean, yes, it works out very well for Star City because they get to sell a bunch of crap they normally wouldn't. But this is what Vegas should be, right? Vegas should be similar. It should be part of what it was last time and also should be all of this. It should be all these like wild one-off events and cool stuff that you don't get to play anywhere else that there's no support for that. You finally have enough people in one place to do them and enough reasons for people to go like, man, where else am I going to play no bandless modern or where else am I going to play? You know, well, I would say a 300 person popper event, but they already had that. I like the idea of it. Even if, you know, Clay, you can complain that it's a cash grab, but like they're a vendor, like they do things to make money. They're not doing the Star City Open series uh, out of altruism, right? Like, I don't see how this is really any different. Yeah, well, if they're if they're doing random one of things, why not? Why don't they let you uh, binder grind on the floor at a SCG con, huh? 
Because sure uh, I, I heard some, I heard some funny stories about what happened at Santa Clara and Houston, where like channel employees are like allegedly like they know like who the the main people are that are like trying to trade for a profit, but now they're just going after random people. Or like people will be sitting there trading, and it'll take like an hour for a big trade, and they'll come over and they'll be like, "Are you trading for a profit?" So it's just it's one of those things that like I find hilarious that they're starting that's to still, do that. That's still dumb as hell, but uh, it doesn't really impact the whether or not a Star City Con is a cash grab. I would say. No, I just I mean, thought it was I, interesting. I think it's just like they're replacing them for Grand Prix since they aren't doing any this year. Like, Star City has always done, in my opinion, some of the best Grand Prix. Albeit, I only pretty much go to the ones on the East Coast, which is the ones that they did. But, like, there's a significant difference between Star City Grand Prix and, like, uh, Pastimes Grand Prix. Like, they're just, it was just a world of difference. So, I think that they're using this this ability now to host a basically a grand prix in their you know close to their headquarters so it doesn't cost them as much to move everything whatever i, I don't know i think that this is going to be a, a cool event i'm actually thinking about even going myself i'm not sure yet um i still have to see what else is going to be there but you know i i think that this could be a very good event for a lot of different people and it's not like it, it's like what what a grand prix should be it should just be a convention like it the, the headlining thing should not be, you know, a tournament where everyone is like negative EV when they sign up. Well, I, I think GPs should be at least like your, you know, 35, 38 of the 40 GPs a year. Like they're there, they're there as a, for a competitive event. They don't need to be conventions. Uh, but Vegas absolutely should be that at least, at least Vegas. I think one a year is probably enough, right? Like more than one, you probably run the risk of spreading people too thin. I mean, Vegas alone is already, we've had a lot of people be like, eh, once every two years is enough. We don't need this every year. It's a good point. I was extremely burned out by Vegas and now I'm very apprehensive about this year. Yeah, it's easy to justify that cost once every other year, but once a year is tough. Anyone else want to chime in? Nope. All right, Jim, let's skip ahead to the credit winner. Okay, so this week's uh, winner posted his question on gatheringmagic.com, which if you want to win next week, uh, you need to post a question in the comments of the article that goes up with our cast. Uh, his name is Charles Hutchinson. He says, I started listening to your podcast in November of 2017 after DJ name dropped you enough times on Brainstorm Brewery. I guess I'll have to thank DJ for that later. I, I took advantage of your hiatus to listen to about eight months of older casts. In one episode, you, someone mentioned ensuring your collection which has been on my mind for a while. What is the best way to ensure a player's magic collection as opposed to a store? For the sake of argument, consider a player with a couple of modern decks, a couple of Vegas decks, a cube, plus various other decks like Commander Popper. Homeowner's insurance has a low cap for collectibles around $2,000. And when I looked into getting additional coverage, the cost was prohibitive at around 4% of the collection value each year. And they wanted a complete inventory of every card. 
Clearly, that's impractical for anyone buying and selling cards on a regular basis. Are there any specialty insurers that you can recommend? Any sane way to inventory a collection with moderate turnover? Thanks in advance. Uh, I don't have any of my cards insured, mostly because it, it's just too much of a pain, and I try to sell the expensive ones whenever I can. Um, so I don't really have a good solution to that problem. Before we discuss this problem, I want to talk about that this guy listened to eight months worth of this cast at once. That just seems insane to me. <laughs> How many of my puns did he have to bear through for eight months? Especially it's all it's so it's so temporal. So much of what we talk about is like useful only within a specific time frame. I wouldn't want to listen to myself for that much. <laughs> Uh, so I guess to provide something of a useful answer, uh, although it won't be really, uh, I've never found anything that was, that I bothered. My collection is not insured and like, I would like it to be, but I also would not pay 4% of the price and have a, a list of every single card. I think what's probably more realistic and I haven't done this either and I should is grab a fire safe, shove all your good stuff in there and then inventory, like, you know, every card over, you know, $200 or something, right? Just the most expensive stuff, you know, if you've got power and those types of things. Uh, but, you know, I actually don't own any power, so I don't even, my, you know, I've got like a judge cradle, but other than that, I don't have too many cards floating around that are more than $200. So I don't even know what I would, what I would uh, ensure really if it was that, if it was that much of a pain and it was that expensive. I think the uh, the fire safe is kind of the first good step. Just buy yourself a reasonable safe. Um, if you're really concerned and you actually own your house or whatever, uh, buy safe that you can bolt uh, one either bolt into the ground so that you know people don't just steal the safe. Um, most safes aren't very heavy, like sixty pounds. That's that's someone that that that's enough that like two people can easily easily walk out with it, if, especially if they know that you have a safe. Um, don't tell people that you own a safe, kind of keep it tucked, you know, in your basement if you have it bolted down or put it somewhere where it can be covered up or something. I'm really paranoid. These are like the things that concern me. Um, and Ed's address more... is nine, 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 nine. No, I'm kidding. No, no, no. If you're going to get a safe, you should get one of those like in the wall safes with a picture over it just so you can be that like evil cartoon guy. Yeah, mine's behind a picture of Jason Alt. Is that before or after his flavor uh, change? After the flavor. I thought it would enhance my room. Um, anyways, like a safe is probably like for most people, it's probably like, I would say probably 90% of the way there. It's enough to, to ensure that one, it won't get stolen. Um, two, if your house does burn down or something, most fireproof safes, um, they're, uh, the biggest concern of those is if you do buy a safe, you want to buy a fire, both a fireproof and a waterproof safe. There's concern that um, the, if the safe isn't sealed tight, that when people are spray, when you know your house burns down, they spray water on it. Uh, the water is actually more concerning than the heat itself because at some point, if the if the fire is hot enough, most safes will the contents will probably just ignite, especially if it's just like a pile of magic cards, which is why it's not generally not recommended to keep like. Things like your birth certificate, social security, valuable documents for like, you know, your property or whatever to keep in these safes because again, they in theory it'll just ignite rather than actual actually burn. Um 
if you if you really do have a lot, if you're you're talking like a six digit collection, maybe look at like a gun safe. Um, again, because for most people, that's just far far more realistic than spending you know what was the question four percent of your collection value each year. If your collection is really worth that much, go spend fifteen hundred dollars on a gun safe and just give yourself that peace of mind. I have no idea what um a good like even where to tell people about actually insuring people like homeowners is step one step two is you can look at like collect like insurances that specialize in collectibles for things like i've looked at insuring like my watches um i don't care uh <laughs> kind of gives you a scale for the watch collection there i'm paranoid but uh i also want to insure my watches Right, but I just realized like it's just completely not practical. It's one. It's it's like I own sure like, my sneakers. Okay, now I'm being mocked. Uh, what? No, but I'm I'm curious. What is the difference between like a gun safe and just any other decent safe? Well, a gun safe is heavy enough that like two like two random donkeys off the street and breaking into your house probably won't be able to like walk off with it. I see like people have the cheap like Costco safes that are just a briefcase has a lock on it, and that's not doing you any good because sure. Like if your house burns out, you can grab it and like run out, but that's not stopping someone from stealing it, which presumably is the bigger concern for people who are looking at insuring their collection. It's like, Oh, what happens if someone breaks in my house and walks off with, you know, like this, you know, like this box of cards, that's worth like $40,000 or something like that's a problem. That's more of a concern than your house burning down in, in, in my mind. That's what I, I imagine that people who are looking to, Insure their collection, like that's their primary concern. Gun safes can literally hold Ed. We could probably put Ed in the gun safe. Yeah, and like the ones that cost fifteen hundred dollars, way close to like half a ton. The gun uh, safe doesn't solve the ignition within the case, though, right? Yeah, there's certain ones where it's it's guaranteed for like X amount of time. Yeah, X amount of time at X amount of temperature. If I mean, you if have you, like a microwave box, which is what most people have because they bought a $50 safe on Amazon, all the cards inside are going to go away. I mean, it, I guess, it, you know, if you've got uh, one of these mediocre safes is fine. If you've got like a normal person collection, if you've got like summer magic cards, take it to a bank vault, right? Like that's that's your option. If you've got pieces of paper that are worth $30,000, you need a bank vault or something like that. Most safety deposit. Yeah, boxes unless you go through like a very very yeah. secure one they only interrupt at one hundred thousand dollars yep and that's like one of ed's watches so that's no bueno i, I mean um, I, I, say, I say only right but in theory like you know like you could have like two vintage x are more than 100k and that's more than what they'll insure but granted like like you're probably should be concerned that your bank is gonna burn down so that is that might be a safer place to start but how much of a headache are you willing to give up to you know, have to drive to a bank every time you want to like pull cards out. Like that's probably just not realistic at all. Yep. Back to insurance, Travis or or Jim. Do you want to do you want to touch on insurance at all? Uh, no. I have cards like on the floor in my house in Florida, so I'm clearly not a person trying hard there. Because you're having to go to the bank every time you need the cards isn't a problem. Because how many times are you going to grab it each year? Twice. Yeah, once for SCG Con and once for Eternal Weekend, apparently. Yeah, there you go. So I can't speak on non-business insurance um, because that's what you're asking. And I understand that homeowner's insurance does have a low cap. And it also says that you think it's impractical to do a complete inventory of your cards. But like, get your stuff audited. 
like get it inventoried by like a local game shop and have them sign a piece of paper saying it's worth this much. And maybe that'll help with your insurance. I've seen people do that in the past. Uh, but you can't really have fast insurance. It's just like if your house burns down, you have to inventory all the dollar bottles of, sh- of uh, sh- shampoo and like all the random doohickeys laying around your house. Uh, it all adds up. So if you're actually going to do it correctly, you should insure everything. You're giving this have- guy a hard time about not wanting it. Inventory, like a probably in a hundred page binder with four X of like $3 modern stuff. Yeah, I am. Because if he's serious about it, and if he's actually worried about stuff getting damaged, he should be willing to put in the work. There is absolutely a risk versus reward calculation here. And inventorying your playset of FNM Eternal Witnesses does not meet the status for that risk versus for that calculation. All right. Not enough. I would much prefer to do everything the correct way. And that would be the thing I would do is, you know, get a couple beers, don't spill them on your cards while you're doing inventory and put on house of cards or something and watch it all weekend and just sit there in inventory cards. The most work is not necessarily the best way. Yep. Yeah. Like uh, I, I, I think Jeremy kind of hits there. Like it is an all or nothing thing. Like if you want, you know, like, you know, this box insured, for example, count every card, take pictures of the relevant cards have it signed, notarized, whatever, so that that way when, you know, this this box gets stolen, hey, this box, this, probably not this example, probably should not use, like, a generic white box, but uh, if this box does get stolen, you have something to say, like, hey, these were the contents of this box, it was appraised, it's no longer here, they'll, if you've actually ever tried to go through and, like, claim insurance on something, it's a nightmare. I had one of my uh, downstairs housemates, he lost his Mac, um, he thinks that like some random house guest that they had over stole it, but he has no idea. It took him like, it took him a month to actually get someone to come out and just, they like literally just looked around the house said, okay, your Mac is gone. Like that was literally all it did. That took a month. And then from there it took like six weeks for him to actually get a check based on like appraisal of the value of a Mac, which is not that hard to do. And them to actually like approve it and then send the check for reimbursement on the Mac. Um, and now you're trying to talk about magic cards that fluctuate in very in value. You're talking about what there's a nine or thirty count box is like a thousand cards in this box or binder. If you have it packed to a brim, it holds like five hundred cards or you know three hundred sixty cards or whatever. It's just it's just gonna be a ton of work. So if you're gonna do the work, do it right. And then if you want something like relatively pain like painless, just buy safe. So like those are like kind of like the options I would suggest doing something in the middle just seems far less. You could carry, you could buy a safe and you could carry like Travis, you're muted. Carry the safe. What? No, (laughs) if you, if you want to do the thing between like actually insuring your entire collection and like buying a refrigerator sort of looking safe, buy a gun safe, put a gun in there and then put your collection in there. And that's like, $2,000, which is in between like insuring and putting in all that work and like buying a $50 safe and having someone just walk in and walk out with it. Like Ed stupidly just like said, I have a box of cards worth this much in my house, but like I specifically tell my customers and even when they're like over at my place, like I don't keep cards in the house that are worth money because it's just like not something I want to deal with. You could also claim that there's something easy to understand in the safe and commit insurance fraud. 
that's always an option as well. That's easy. <laughs> yeah, Ed, what time are we burning down your apartment next week for insurance money? I forgot. Uh, don't burn down my apartment. There are things in here that are far more valuable than magic cards. So, and and that box is like a box, a box off the floor. This is a box of bulk. So I like I insure nothing mainly because I don't care, and I'm at the point where I don't keep a lot of personal cards. Like I don't like I don't have a complete deck of any form, and most things like I can just pack up a backpack and go and be reasonably fine in terms of magic. But there are things that are like more important to me than magic cards, which I probably should buy safe. But like even the thought of buying like you know an eight hundred dollar relatively small gun safe is just more headache than I want to deal with right now. I'd rather take my chances. Okay, that's uh, yeah. I think we'll leave it there. I think we covered insurance pretty well. So there's three steps: you could buy a microwave or oven looking safe off of uh, Amazon or Best Buy or Home Depot or whatever you have in your area. You could buy a gun safe and or a gun, or you could go all the way and spend a weekend and and get everything down in a spreadsheet slash take it to your LGS and have them uh, put it in official writing that your collection is worth this much. So that's uh, those are your options, but that's a great question. And thanks for listening to eight months of our cast in one go. That's definitely cool, I guess. I'm not sure that's the word you wanted to use, but we appreciate your patronage. Glad we have psychopaths that listen to us. Jeez. Really distributing our audience. Yeah, that's Travis, in case you're like not watching live. Uh, he's a jerk. To ignore him. Jim, do you want to hit us with another question? One of our or where can they leave a question for next week? And then do you want to hit us with another question that someone left that didn't win? Uh, I guess so, and I said at the beginning, uh, but just to reiterate, you can go to gatheringmagic.com. This cast will go up on Tuesday the 30th, and you leave a question in the comments below. Uh, Now I have to load the page to find out what else got left there. So give me one minute. So here we go. Uh, so Barnaby Lovell asks, "Hey guys, I have a question as to the types of growth you guys aim for when making a pick. Generally, you have two forms: natural steady growth or aggressive spikes due to big movement and speculation. Uh, looking at old school, many cards will spike given little real growth, while those that grow slowly can give great growth, but." That could be different depending on the time. I don't know what's the question. All right. So first of all, if you leave a question on Gathering Magic, please actually leave a question that I can decipher instead of a jumble of words. But I think what he's trying to ask is, do you prefer cards that that are like more long-term picks that grow slowly and steadily or short-term picks that spike quickly and you can get rid of? I like cards that uh, have long, steady growth because a lot of times, and I don't know how much this happens to Jim or Travis, I know it doesn't really happen to Ed, I'll buy a card, I'll put it somewhere, and then I'll forget about it and find it later. And I'd much rather have it be like a long-term card than like something that spiked and I just had it in a box somewhere. 
Uh, well, I mean, I used to do a lot of the longer term type of stuff. I don't do it quite as frequently as I used to also because I will forget that I have it. Um, especially if it's not just like a spike and it's more like a slow rise, then I, it won't trigger in my mind to go look for it. Also, if I have to decide between earning 100% profit in six months or two weeks, I'm going to choose the one that does it in two weeks. Uh, so, I mean, if you're talking about like, do you want to try, but at the same time, you also want to establish the ability to kind of have stuff that you're guaranteed to get paid off over the long term. Because if you can kind of get that ball rolling and pull stuff out like every six months or nine months or even a year or two, that like you're like, okay, dictative Erebus, that's a 10 cent card, 20 cent card. Now I know it's going to be $2 down the road. Like I'll put a stack of them away. So, like that kind of stuff is nice to have that's pretty essentially guaranteed um but isn't going to act really quickly and then also you can kind of have your more active spec portfolio on the side that's less of a good plan these days because wizards has hit the reprint button a lot so i'm a little more nervous about that um but i have certainly opted towards shorter term quicker things than i used to i also don't usually bother unless it's at least uh, a double up but it generally i'm shooting for more than that because like fees and whatnot are going to eat into that so like i want 100 percent profit uh net profit so you know you're looking if you know if you're talking about a ten dollar card it needs to i need to be able to sell it for like 24 in order to actually make the 10 an extra ten dollars over what i spent on it but of course i relax at 100 if we're talking about a a 60 card going to 80 or 85 dollars then you know i'm still making 25 bucks on it even if the investment's a little higher as long as i think that that's going to happen quick enough that i don't mind uh the loss of liquidity Ed. Uh, i definitely used to do more long-term things but yeah like travis said the reprint button happens so often and it also happens a lot sooner in the car's life cycle than it used to um, like, for example, the Commander decks, just the last set of Commander decks, which is the 2017 ones, they reprinted Zendikar Resurgent, which is not even, like, two years old. That came out in uh, Oath of the Gatewatch, and that was just, like, a card that, like, seemed like an easy slam dunk if you just bought a bunch of copies for a quarter and sat on them for a while. But those kinds of cards, like, are not going to exist very often, so... My general strategy at this point is to either buy things that I know are going to go up pretty close to the time that I buy them, either because like new cards are being printed that are going to make them more expensive, or I think that like it'll have a big impact in a tournament in the real recent uh, or in the, in the near future. Um, but pretty much past that, like I think long-term specs are kind of a trap at this point. Uh. It's, it's no surprise that I only focus basically on short-term stuff. I'd rather lock in a profit now. Um, you just I, I don't think you can afford to be greedy. Gone are the days of MTG Finance for most of the Scar Start in like 2010, 2012, 13, even like as late as like 2014 when people could still get in. Um, the reprint button is, is, is just being like, it's just being dumped on too many times. Like there's just nothing that's really safe anymore. You It's hard to put stuff away and expect to see a lot of growth because one, either there's too much supply or you risking the card itself seeing a reprint. Um, I, I think I'm happy to lock it in, just make the profit, especially if it was relatively painless. You know, I, I pre-ordered something like, you know, 75 rekindling Phoenixes for whatever price they went up. Like I, it's standard. I don't expect it to become like $30. So I was happy to flip it for plus like 15 to 20%. 
Um, if it becomes thirty dollars, great. I'll, I'll move on. I'll have bought something else to turn over for fifteen to twenty percent by then. Um, you, I don't think you can afford to like see to see the long term types of growth unless you have a ton of money, a ton of capital, and you're willing to sell on like old school stuff, dual lands, power, reserveless cards, basically. But like that, that's not my model. That's not for me. I I think people are like slowly starting to come around to that, but um, I, just lock your profits and move on. And be happy with it. I like longer term. I think you end up earning more and hoping that your box of specs, like you have cards that will double up or whatever or triple up over the course of a year. Yeah, I like uh, both sides, but I mean, for me, I just like the longer, safer stuff. It'll actually lead into my pick of the week. Uh, which uh, we should get into, I actually. So it's uh, it's time for the pick of the week. Ed, what you got? Uh, I'm go- like I actually went back and looked at our spreadsheet for my master uh for my p- picks of the week, and I was very bullish on masterpieces for a while. I'm slowly starting to get back to that point. Um, for this week, I really like masterpiece uh through the breach. There are aren't a lot of copies out there, and despite what I said about uh not looking at the quantities that exist on TG player because there's a lot of factors. We talked about that last week. Um, there actually aren't a lot of copies on this and masterpieces kind of fall in like the old school, like reserves foils type category. There aren't a lot of them out there mainly because uh, I want to say it's our devastation wasn't open to large enough quantities for, for a ton of these to exist. And with the Mar pro tour around the corner, through the breach is the type of card where if it sees any sort of camera play, if the deck is r- remotely, if it gets any sort of visibility, then that card is just going to like go through the roof. Um, you do have a relatively short time span to capitalize on it because it's, I think Gorio's Vengeance and Through the Breach are both cards that are primed to be reprinted in Masters 25, but you do have kind of a short win- window to capitalize on that. And Through the Breach is the type of card, uh, especially in the Masterpiece form, where it has a little bit more longevity. It's obviously a cube card, EDH card. You know, if it does become a modern stable for a short period, you have plenty of opportunities to cash out on it. But I'm at the point as a whole where Masterpieces have just quietly been creeping up. It was something I actually didn't notice until I looked at things. Um, Die Ball Content is up there. That was one, it was supposedly one of the crappier Masterpieces open for a while, and now it's like almost $40 on TCG player, which was kind of insane to me. Um, I, th- I don't think we're long from kind of being back in period where people are starting to buy these out left and right. Um, so kind of make that for like, decision for yourself. Brings a bright hurt to $60 when it was previously like $35 not too long ago. Um, a lot of these are starting to disappear, and I think it's it's really suffering from kind of reserve lift syndrome where... You know, I've said it before, these are your modern-day reserveless cards. There really aren't that many out there. If you want to buy them, just buy them. Uh, mainly because people who do buy them, they will generally always pay more than what they'll be able to get rid of them for, so it makes it very difficult for people to want to get rid of them. And at GPs, it kind of seems like it's fallen off the list in terms of what people are, are buying. It's no longer on buy lists. People generally aren't really bringing them in, mainly because they just quietly disappear in people's collection and you just don't see them again. So that's where I stand. Take that as you will. As you will. I'm probably not going to be engaging any buy lists unless I see a, or any buyouts unless I see a good opportunity to do so. But that's my warning. 
Jim. So I'm kind of just looking at a bunch of casual cards from Battle for Syndicar block that and, and Shadows or Initial block because those kinds of those those sets have slowly cre started to creep up now. They've they've kind of like hit the bottom and then they're back on their way up. But I also looked at the uh, results from the Star City Open last week and the week before. And I think that we're very close going to come to a um, a standard format where cast out is going to be the best removal spell in the format. Um, we already have like the two premier threats are Hazaret the Fervent and the Scarab God, and uh, Rekindling Phoenix is picking up a lot of steam in some Grixis variants uh, as another way that like has to be exiled in order to um, in order to get rid of it cleanly. So I think cast out's the kind of card that could see a lot of play very soon. They're like a quarter to 50 cents and they could be like a $3, $4 card for a couple of weeks. Uh, if they get really popular, I think that it's a pretty safe investment if you're a player and you don't own any right now. Uh, and if you're thinking about playing standard just to buy cast out. And even if you want to go a little bit further and get Ixalan's binding, that's probably like the two cards that I'm most excited about. Uh, obviously, it's like Vras's Contempt is probably the best of all of those, but it's already like seven dollars, so I'm not sure that you want to buy those yet. Travis, um, I'm not in love with too much right now. I did think uh, I noticed burgeoning isn't too bad. Uh, the foil specifically are like thirteen dollars right now. It's like a top uh, card in EDH, top green card in EDH. Um, it is in. Let me get the number here. It's in like thirteen six. They're over thirteen thousand, almost fourteen thousand EDH decks on EDH rock. So it's got a really good demand profile. The card's really good uh, in EDH, especially when you can draw frequently and you can just keep putting down four lands a turn for a while. Um, you know, supply is lowish. Uh, you're not going to see the spike in two weeks, but you know, if you can get in at twelve or thirteen on foil burgeonings now, you know, if you can get six months to a year without a reprint which is a question mark uh you know they could be 25 or 30 dollars i mean it's a, it's a great card one of the most popular green cards in edh i did not actually know that they were that cheap that's pretty pretty good knowledge yeah i've got a pick this week that isn't a one thousand dollar card or a two dollar card for once thanks reddit my pick of the week is Mind Over Matter. This is a card that spiked a couple of months ago and it fell back in price. The reason why I like it is because it started moving again the last couple of weeks in America and just recently it started moving in Europe quite a bit. You can still find copies for $12 uh, in a couple different locations, but most people have it at 17 to 20. I think this is a $20 card by June. And this is something that if you see it in a case or if you're able to trade for it, I really like picking this card up. Uh, I'm just noticing that the global trends are starting to converge on this card. As Ed said, uh, arbitrage is helping a lot with this and the prices are starting to become normalized. And this is one of those that I see sticking at 17 to $20, but there's still places you can buy them at 12. Uh, as a disclaimer, I have eight copies on the shelf, but that's it. I'm not like sitting on a bunch of them. And we have them priced at we have them priced at 15 each right now, I believe. Yeah, Mind Over Matter is pretty busted in EDH with that new um, flip artifact that turns into land that gives you mana equal to your life total. Yep. That's, that's, that's where I was thinking about that. Yeah, so it's starting to go up. It's just something to keep an eye on. 
I think this is going to be a $20 card in a couple of months. And by a couple, I mean June. That would be my guess. So, where can people find you guys? Uh, I'm at uh, Edwin13 on Twitter. Uh, shout out to all the people who actually came up to me in GP London uh, to say hi, whatever. Thank me for what I do. That that is uh, I'm not really sure what I do for people, but I guess people like listening to me. Thanks You're also pretty face. Uh, sure. Um, I will see people next at GP Toronto. Um, I'm not sure how long I'll be there for. I think that might be just get there, leave Sunday night. Um, and then after that, I think. I'm not sure what's after that. I, I can't plan that far out. I I can't really think either. I need to sleep, so that's happening soon. You just live your day one like, one day at a time. Jim? My name is Jim Casale. You can find me on Twitter at PHROST underscore. You can find me on uh, Gathering Magic every other week, and you can find me on this podcast every Monday. I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday over at MTG Price for the doing the Watchtower series. I also do the MTG Fast Finance podcast. If you enjoy playing Magic, check out Scry.land. Find magic in your area. And I'm Jeremy. I'd like to say thanks to all the people that came up to me at Houston. Uh, a lot of the vendors listen to our cast, which is weird. Someone called Foil Return to Dust last week, and like he had it for a dollar. And then he's like, I need to reprice this. Uh, so, Yay. Uh, had a lot of normal people come up and say hi too. That was pretty cool. Uh, we talked about Jim's wedding because some of them are going. That was pretty funny. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Missouri MTG. Pre-registration for our Legacy 5K just opened up. I'll actually be vetting that with Douglas Johnson at Brainstorm Brewery. Uh, he's going to be my booth babe for the weekend. So if you want to talk to either of us, we'll both be there in March. Uh, as always, you can find us at cartel underscore finance on Twitter, on Facebook, on uh, YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, and gatheringmagic.com. And as always, we appreciate your uh, your downloads, and we are happy to finally be back with our cast every week after leaving you guys high and dry for about two months. So thanks, and we'll see you next week. Have a good one. Bye. <laughs>